Hi everyone, Don Famulara here, and I am so honored to have the opportunity on these Tuesdays now at two o'clock Eastern Standard Time to have the opportunity for Vader Percussion to talk to different artists from around the world. We recently had Cindy Blackman Santana here, which was such an incredible combination. But today I am live with Elon Rubin. Elon, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Thanks for joining us, Elon. You know, in following your career, I remember when you were just a young little whippersnapper playing drums and and playing it just just in this pure natural I feel it I do it kind of a way and you did that as a child and when I still hear you today you still have that child personality of how you approach the drums I love it <laughs> very much thank you I appreciate it and that takes that takes some people years and a lifetime to develop I suppose. I mean, I have to say, I have to attribute that to starting as a self-taught drummer. I mean, my dad got me started, but once I was able to understand how the drums worked, yeah. and I learned by listening, I had to experiment. It just became a very natural, very natural thing. Well, we, we got to go back. You, you got involved with playing drums because your dad was a drummer and had a, had like a Ludwig silver sparkle kit. He did. Excellent research. Well, I, I tell you, the reason why I remember that is because that's Ludwig Silver Sparkle Kit was what my teacher, Joe Morello, used, and that influenced many drummers to play. And Morello, who I studied with for several years back in the 70s, had that Ludwig Silver Sparkle Kit, and that was the kit we all went and got it. Well, I'm going to bring this back full circle. My dad, in the 60s, did catch him do a clinic. And um, Joe Morello is actually one of my favorite drummers. And uh, I just always loved the way he played. And actually, I know we're going to get into this, but you said you, we first met at this Modern Drummer Festival that I played at when I was uh, 11 years old. Yeah. And I, one of the highlights for that, as I was telling you, now that you mentioned it, was meeting Joe Morello, and he signed my copy of Master Studies. Oh, listen, it doesn't um, get any, any deeper than that. That's huge. And backstage... We're always these greats like Morello, who I study with, Jim Chapin, who I study with, you know, because of the East Coast where I'm from. They were all kind of in this area here. And you met them all backstage. I did. I did. I Like I said, those, those are the, the vivid memories that really stick out to me to this day. I have my advanced techniques for the modern drummer signed by Jim. And uh, what I always recall is because I was fortunate enough to see him quite a few times. I mean, as you know, he would always be at NAMM or somewhere with his practice pad talking about the molar technique. And uh, it was just always kind of like the greatest broken record of really nailing in that technique and stressing the importance of, of striking properly. So that was, uh, that was a great time. Well, you know, you're, you're in your, listen, you, you're in the youth of your life. So you've got strength and power and energy behind you. When you get older, not much unlike myself, I still have that strength and energy because of those techniques. Mm, there you go. To deliver the same intensity as I was when I was, you know, in my in my thirties, as I mm -hmm. am now in my in my mid sixties. So it's really kind of amazing how those techniques from those older guys. And when you met them, they were already in their late seventies. And mm -hmm. if you at all watched when they played, they played great. Yep. So at a young age, you were able to maintain that level. But I got to go back. You were self-taught. What influenced you? Who were you listening to at a young age? What bands or what drummers were you listening to to influence you? I mean, for me, to this day and from the absolute beginning, it's it's been John Bonham. He was my absolute favorite. Led Zeppelin is my absolute favorite in in 
every sense of the word musically, each musician in the band. But really, to this day, bottom, I mean, the, the size of the drums that I play, the the actual kit itself, the whole the whole thing. I just always loved the way he played his his finesse, which I you know to this day, as legendary as he is, I don't think enough people give him credit for that finesse. You know, they kind of look at him as a heavy hitter with big drums, but really, it's quite the opposite. The guy had phenomenal feel. He swung a ton, and um, I think he tuned his drums better than anybody else because he looked at the guys that you and I were talking about, like Joe Morello. I know he was a Gene Krupa fan, and it's it's just not a thing where you think of a rock drummer, but he gets his sense of tuning from jazz and big band, and he gets his feel from from Motown and R&B. So you get this this amazing hybrid that you know, unless you really know, you don't realize. And uh, it just it always drives me nuts when people think of him as a basher or a, you know a heavy hit. It's just it's absurd. But uh, yeah, and that was pretty much it. My two favorites were him and Stu Copeland. Now, a huge influence on my playing that doesn't really get to see the light of day in terms of the bands I play with are Joe Morello and Buddy Rich in particular, and that began when I would look at, you know, if you, I haven't been to the Guitar Center drum section in, in quite some time, but when they used to have the old VHS tapes of drum solos and tutorial videos or whatever they're called, um, there was one called Classic Drum Solos, and I figured I'd pick that up, but it was all of the big band and jazz greats. And that set me down a path that has stuck with me because personally, I'm not a big drum solo guy, but Solos in those contexts were the absolute pinnacle of musicality in terms of drumming, in my opinion. Right, right. It wasn't showboating. It wasn't monotonous or look how fast I can do this. I mean, it was the peak of improvisation and creativity. And when I sit down and I play drums, I actually do solo quite a bit, but it's in that vein, in that sort of you take a theme, you expand upon it, you improvise, you you. It's a musical expression as opposed to just showing off. Absolutely. But that's what you do so well, Ilya, because the, 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 the understanding of the jazz mentality mm. in rock, that's exactly what Bonham did. John Bonham was an excellent jazz player. Mm. And, and Morello and Buddy Rich were his two favorite drummers. I knew Jim Marshall, who was one of his teachers mm. many, many years ago, and Jim told me stories about John that he would listen to these stories and he would steal ideas. When students come to study with me and they want to study John Bonham, I say, great, we're going to listen to Joe Morello and Buddy Rich. And Excellent. They, they say, no, Dom, I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to learn John Bonham's playing. I said, yeah, we're going to listen. Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall, sorry, real quick, Jim Marshall was the inventor and creator of the Marshall Amplifier. Mm-hmm. Now, Jim Marshall owned a drum shop many years ago. He was a drummer. And uh-huh. I met Jim back in the early 80s. He was a real fan of my playing. We became dear, dear friends. And he opened up a shop. And he taught the likes of people like John Bonham, Keith Moon, and Mitch Mitchell. Mm. So that story in itself was deeper than I can deep. So with Bonham, yeah. he understood when he taught Bonham. And Jim had studied with Morello and Chapin many years ago. So he brought back to England those concepts of movement, that rebound and that finesse that he gave to John. So John, you know, I, I, I wish he was still around today because he would have clarified such a way of playing that people would see that the level of how you're playing with more finesse and more control and articulation, you will get a bigger sound as Bonham did, which is your freaking sound is so big. Oh, thank oh. you very much. 
Holy, it's, it, which is huge. So now you go on, so you listen to these players, so that did you start studying at all formally with lessons and going through books at all? I did, eventually I did. And, and that, I'm a huge fan of education in general. I mean, if I'm not learning something, whether it's musically or whatever it may be in general, I feel like I'm kind of wasting my time. So I'm a huge advocate of education. But I did start, I learned how to read probably about three or four years in and I did start going through all the books. But um, I will say that there there are some benefits to approaching it both ways because, and I feel strongly about this, if you, uh, if you go down the road of being self-taught and learning through experimentation and listening, you then start flexing some muscles and your ear most importantly. But at the same time, what comes with, with formal education is also very priceless because you learn how to read, which means you can learn anything you want at any given time. You learn how things actually work in a structural sense, which is also priceless. But really, you you learn how to integrate the two. And it may be a little more difficult to explain what I mean in terms as a drummer, but let's say we're taking the exact same thing I'm talking about and we are relating it to a more melodic instrument like the guitar or the piano. And you have that, that self-taught beginning where your ear starts dictating where you want to go and you don't know what how they relate to each other you just like the sound so you start think realizing how things work from a purely taste perspective and when you start learning formally you then see theoretically how things are tied together and i need to stress that whenever i write music i never look at it from a from a taught or a theoretical perspective but if i ever get stuck or ever if I ever want to see what my options are in terms of development, I know where I can go based on having a deeper understanding musically. So I'm a huge advocate of both, and they have their their absolute pros. You know, it's kind of interesting because I think what I what I like everyone to hear in the, in the course of us doing this here is the fact that there are there is a a deep sense of musicality that you approach everything with. It's not this blinder drummer mentality only. There are times where that's needed, but you, listen, as a multi-instrumentalist, you're playing guitar, you're playing drums, you're playing bass, you're playing piano, you're singing, you're writing, you're, you're, you're you know, you're programming. That's a lot going into music that you're approaching this art form from. Mm-hmm. Where did all that come in? Where, where did all the, the learning of all those instruments come in? Was that at an early age? Was that later on? I mean, really, it's one of the benefits to being antisocial, you know? <laughs> Well, I am the youngest of three boys, and although my older brothers started experimenting with the drums, and which is how I got the idea, the motivation to try playing drums myself, as I began improving, and they would say surpassing them, they, I suppose, were turned off to the instrument, and they moved on to guitar and bass. Little did they know that my fascination would follow them onto those instruments as well. So let's let's say for the first three to four years, maybe even five years, I had blinders on with nothing but drums. I just played drums, learned drums, practiced drums. But as uh, some time was opening up and I saw a guitar lying around or a bass lying around, I thought, let me give it a shot. And the second I was able to learn something on each one of those instruments that same spark and fascination hit me where I thought, 
I can play this. I, I'm getting a feeling for how it works, and I can now learn at my own will. And that same thing happened to me when I picked up the piano. And uh, it's just a very liberating thing when you realize I can play this instrument and I can teach myself uh, how to progress. Really, it's in my control uh, as, as good as I want to get. And I just, as, as a result of that, and this all happened by... You know, I, I really took the guitar seriously at 13. I picked up the piano at 15. And really the last sort of tool in my toolbox was singing. And the funny thing about that, which you'll appreciate, is I had this epiphany when I was around 18. And I thought, what is the point of all this time, countless hours that I've spent getting good at each one of these instruments if I can't do the most important thing, which is sing? Now, most people don't want to listen to instrumental music. I don't listen to instrumental music, really. You know, occasionally if it's a film score, if it's a particular piece of, of music. But I thought, okay, I've, this is the, the final thing that I need to do. And um, fortunately, my, my dad pushed me to do that as well. So it's good. Well, your dad's influence really kind of speaks volumes because that singing part of it really is that, that fifth limb that we have. Mm -hmm. It really is an important part. And there are several great teachers that teach that, that while you're playing, sing it and speak and count and get involved with that vocal part of it. It just kind of opens you up and vibrates your body in a different way. But Absolutely. you do something which is interesting on drums. You play open-handed. I do. A la Cobham, who I knew was the first one that I had ever seen do it. Cobham started doing it in 1959. Guys like you know Simon Phillips came in and they started playing open-handed. How did that come about? Did that something that you consciously did it or are you lefty where that all come about it was the most innocent and uh, simple childish thought process where my dad left me in the garage to practice a beat he was teaching me naturally or traditionally i have you want to call it where i was obviously in the hi-hat with my yeah. and uh he went inside and i was playing this beat and it was fine but i thought why am i hitting the hi-hat over there if my left hand's closer <laughs> it. and i went I went inside, I was like, Dad, I got it. And he came in and I started playing it. And it sounded good, but he was looking at it kind of uh, perplexed. Because I don't think he had ever thought to play that way. I mean, it was a natural thing to him. And funny enough, the only things I do left-handed are right and hit the hi-hat. Everything else, I'm right-handed. I play guitar right-handed, I throw right-handed, I kick right-footed. So it's literally the only thing that I do, aside from my appalling penmanship which I attribute to my left-handedness. But, uh, and funny enough, my dad took me to a Dave Weckl clinic at some point. I'd probably only been playing for a year, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. And during the question segment, he asked, and Dave Weckl said, do not hinder him in any way. Let him do what he does, and that's what's best for him. And that was that. I never looked back. However... Being a fanatic of uh, right-handed drummers and experimenting with having just the one tom and floor tom, I really loved the accessibility of the ride being right there, and it felt so good. And to this day, I switch it up. I play the hi-hat left-handed, and when I ride, I ride right-handed. And I, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm entirely equal on both sides. I do from band to band. The um, it is very ambidextrous. This that's a huge, huge advantage in what I call twenty first century drumming. 
where it gives you way more freedom. I play open-handed. I made the change having been influenced by Cobbin and a dear, dear friend of mine. And by having that ability of being able to, you know, have that left side and the right-hand freedom just brings a whole new level of opportunity that would not come from that cross-handed challenge. I completely agree. And um, not that this is of the utmost importance, but the way I play and the way I like to perform, because there is a bit of, of showmanship with the way I play live, being open and not being restricted by having a, a your other arm kind of hindering where your snare drum hand hits, it, it's really been beneficial to the way I play and the style that I've developed. Boy, good for you. Good, good for you. That's really fantastic. So now you're playing now. Now you were playing with your, I know Aaron was, Aaron was the one that was playing bass, right? Uh, eventually, yeah. They both kind of, they both played both. I mean, Aaron initially started on guitar. Danny was on bass. Then things kind of swapped. Aaron picked up the bass. And then at some point I picked up the bass and he said, I'm done. I'm going to get into management. <laughs> so, yep. so when did professional playing step in? When did you start working and gigging? You know, I mean, when did that all start? Gigging started very immediately. And, and the reason why that was is there's an eight-year difference between Aaron and myself. So playing in his high school band as an eight- or nine-year-old, when you're in your late teen, you know, mid-late teens, that's when you start playing shows and, and trying to do that thing. So I was involved in that at the very beginning of my drumming career, if you will. I mean, in terms of actually touring, my first genuine stints probably took place around 12 or 13, you know, two or three weeks out at a time. But by 14, I was out for, for months at a time, which is why just shy of my second semester of sophomore year, I had to check into homeschooling where I was basically my own teacher because I was gone for stretches that were beyond what the school system was required. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was that. And obviously having uh, very supportive parents, as you can tell by our conversation, yeah. they thought, okay, this is what you got to do. But if you don't graduate with honors and if you don't get straight A's, it's not going to go well for you. So I had to really pay attention with my schooling and uh, I got it done faster as well. So it all it all worked out for the better. But look at the brilliant parenting you had. You had They, they guided you, they supported you, but they challenged you. And Perfect. you rose to the challenge. And you pulled it off. So here you are now. Listen, at 11, you're at Woods on Woodstock stage playing. I mean, that had to be, as a kid, that had to be mind blowing. That you're seeing all these people. You're like, like, how did you, how did you handle this? How did you deal with all this? It's an absolute blur at this point, and I'm not trying to be modest or boring. It's an absolute blur. I mean, I vaguely recall the feeling of playing in front of a crowd of that size. And, uh, for, you know, for anybody who's tuning in, this was a set up in an airplane hangar in between the two main stages, which were on polar opposites of this airfield. So it was kind of this, this island in the middle of no man's land. But uh, at that time, it was certainly the biggest audience I'd ever played for. We were the first band to perform and open the, the whole thing up. But honestly, it's one of those things that I don't really enjoy talking about too much because, as I said, it's a blur. And it's one of those things that was just so long ago that I really don't have much to say. My recollection is very hazy. <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's definitely a great experience. I'm sure it helped mold me in some way as a performer because it was certainly the biggest crowd I'd ever played in at that point in my life. And, well, I, uh, but, that, but that's fantastic. I, I can relate to it. I was, was a professional at the age of 12, and I have very little bits of memories from those days. But you know, at that time, at a young age, you were playing a lot. I mean, you were, you were physically rehearsing and playing a lot. Yes. So that's an incredible, interesting, because when I, Ringo, Ringo had said he never really practiced on a practice pad. He never did that. Mm -hmm. He just played music, playing with bands and rehearsals. That was his practice. Mm -hmm. So you sound like that was, it's very similar to how that was. You were, you were shedding on the kit, learning tunes and playing with bands. Yeah, and you know, I did practice, but I was never the type who would sit down for hours and hours at a time. I mean, I respect those who approached improving that way, but I was always of the mindset, and still am to this day, by the way, of playing while you're in the mood. And if that mood starts fading, go do something else and come back to it when you're in the mood. Because then that really ensures that you're in the zone and you're really there mentally. You're not sitting there beating a dead horse if it's not happening. And I was always that way. So I could play drums two separate, two or three separate times within the hour as opposed to being there for 60 minutes. And I always felt that I got as much, if not more that way, because I was always really in tune with what I was doing. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the phrase in the zone. This is a very important understanding of what that means. In the moment, to own the moment and be present at that time all the time. You do that so well. And a lot of the recordings that I've heard you do and a lot of the, the videos that's on the internet that I've, I've watched you do, you really are in that moment all the time. How do you feel you develop that? Uh, really, I think all I can attribute that to is having started at, at such a young age which is the same thing I attribute being so comfortable on stage to. I mean, it's in me. I've done it for so long to the point where I don't rem remember what it was like not having been a performer or a drummer, really, for that matter. So it's, uh, fortunately, it's a very natural thing. I mean, as, as I said, I, singing was, was the last piece of the puzzle for me, and I recall ages of being shy and constantly having to tell myself, you gotta loosen up, you can't be shy, you can affect the way you sing, so on and so forth. But as a drummer, that conversation has never been in my mind. Yeah. So I think some people have it, some people definitely work on it. I mean, the more you do anything, the more comfortable you become doing it. But uh, fortunately, having started at such a young age, just that's the way it is. It, you know, it, the term, in the zone or the phrase in the zone may seem like some enigmatic thing for somebody who's not very descriptive, but I was just thinking about this as I was talking to you about it. And I mean, we've all read a book or we've been on a page where we've read the whole thing and we don't realize what we just read, but we read it and just don't recall what, what information we processed. And I feel that that is what a lot of people do when they force themselves to practice beyond their limits and their patience at any time, in which case you're almost wasting time. Your time is better served doing something else. So I always, and I do that, I'm in a very small little bedroom studio right here, get the drum symbol in the back, boxes in here, but 
I have a little kit behind me. Unfortunately, I can't have a, a live set in here, but I've got a piano here, guitars, and I will do that with, where I'll play piano for 20 minutes, I'll sing a song, then I'll pick up the guitar, and then I'll sit, and that just kind of keeps me consistently fresh, as if I, instead of telling myself, I'm going to sit at the piano for two hours, and I will not do anything else until I'm done. It's just not the way I've ever worked. Well, that's interesting, because what you speak about is, is what to understand about you is that you have a high level of comprehension. Because if you're staying focused on what you're doing, you're able to retain more of what's happening. And you're right, several people practice and they go into zombie mode. They have no idea what they're practicing. They're just going through the movement and they're not comprehending totally what that practice or what that expression is about. But that, that's, that's another, another gift that is, uh, is, is pretty blessed that you had it at a young age. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, if you're really not paying attention to what it is that you're doing, and, and this goes with this goes along if you're formally practicing. I mean, I love playing something and not thinking, and then the, the minutes just roll by. But if you actually have some sort of set goal, something that you want to learn, something that you want to improve. You really need to be paying attention, or else it's really not going to go to plan. But um, as somebody who had improvisation stressed upon as a as a young musician, I do love kind of sitting at the drums or anything and just kind of floating away and, and playing around. So, was there influence? Like I, I, I thought I had had heard about you had worked with with Travis with Travis Barker. Was that was that a I part did. of your upbringing? Uh, in terms of improvisation, no. Um, what I really appreciated about Travis that, I mean, by now people must know, but this was uh, almost 20 years ago, maybe 18, 19 years ago. He was a very school drummer. I mean, him and I spent quite a bit of time out of the Jim Chapin book and a snare drum book and Funky Primer and all these other things. And he's a very, very studied musician. And we spent half the time at the practice pad half the time with the kit, the entire time reading something. So uh, that was great. But the whole sense of improvisation, once again, I have to um, get my hat to my dad. But uh, being a music fan starting in the 60s, where that was kind of just part of the whole thing. You jam, you improvise, you stretch things out. That was stressed upon me as, uh, as a drummer to begin with, and as a guitar player, bass player. And I've just always, and of course, being a Led Zeppelin fanatic and cream and anybody who never stuck to what was on the album when they played live, yeah. that's just the way I, I see music in the live aspect. It's meant to be different. It's meant to be twisted and special. Well, that, that, that's so great to hear. It's so good to have someone as young as yourself that understands the importance of that, that improvisational you know, ingredient in playing and that really is that it's that non-thinking you know thought is the enemy of flow mentality yep. you, you're, again you're in the zone you're in the moment and you're allowing whatever you have inside you to come out and express yourself i've seen several solos of yours and even some jazz solos of yours where you you feel that and you do that that's really fantastic well thank you and, and i honestly think it, it's the best way to stretch your own skill set because it gets you in the zone, just like speaking or singing 
as you're doing something, there's another part of your mind thinking about what you're going to do next. And if you can really flex that muscle of fluidity, you're able to think of something and then do it rather than spending too much time thinking or worrying about it. I mean, there's nothing worse than when you can hear a drummer or any musician for that matter, who's kind of revving himself up to do a fill or, or something. And you can tell it was overthought, it was rushed, it didn't work well. And that's because there isn't that comfort in just doing it. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a comfort in doing it, but there's also a level of confidence. There's also a level of trust. Mm. And those are qualities, obviously, that you have, you have been blessed with, that you're not afraid to take a chance, and you're going to go for it. And if you make somewhat of a mistake, you have the confidence to know that you're going to work that mistake into your favor and go someplace else with it. Or, as you know, you do it again, and it's not a mistake anymore. <laughs> well, well said. Exactly right. Talk about... Talk about the bands now. You're in this early band now. You're, you're playing along the way. What was the next band that you moved to? From, from How did you evolve from band to band? Well, the second band I was in um, was a result of... So it was a band called Denver Harbor, and it was very, very short-lived. But that band started from the ashes of another band. They had kind of split up and they started two different bands. So the singer of that band um, was friends with my brother or acquaintances with my brother at that time. He saw us play. And at that point I was 14 years old, but he really liked my drumming. And it just happened that he wanted to play. I brought um, Aaron into that as well as, as the bass player. And it kind of just, just formed as the band. I mean, that, that's just how it worked. And as I said, it was very short-lived, and I experienced very early on in life the uh, excitement of signing to a major label in the eight month later having been dropped and then figuring out what you're going to do with your life. Fortunately, I was 16 when I had the what am I going to do with my life conversation. <laughs> but um, as I said, that was my first real experience of touring very consistently, months on end out. It's also my first experience traveling internationally. I mean, I did my first tour of Japan when I was 15 or 16, and it, it was a good experience. But um, from that, somebody in the UK heard me, heard about me, or saw me play, or listened to the album. I don't know what it was, and they recommended me to a British band at that point. And as I said, I had the conversation with myself: What am I going to do with my life? I, I suffered my first. It's not even a quarter-life crisis. I don't know, eighth-life crisis. I don't know what you'd call it at that age. But uh, I thought, I really need to make a move. And, you know, as we were discussing fate from capacity before we actually started this uh, live stream, got a call from this band. I honestly hadn't heard of the band at the time, but I saw that they were very popular, especially in the UK and really the rest of the world. It seemed like the US was their, their weakest market. But that, for me, was very exciting and that was a very distinct stepping stone where I was now playing European festivals and fairly high up on the bills and I spent almost all of my time outside of the US so that was a tremendous experience and then that you know I've covered from about 2003 or 4 to 2007 or 8 so this is a lot that went down in that time but uh, come 2008, I'm playing at the Reading and Leeds festivals in England with this band, and 
Trent Reznor watched me play. Fast forward a year later, he needs a drummer. He recalls having seen me play. A friend of mine and business partner was actually teching for, for Josh Freed as he was playing for Nine Inch Nails. And then that whole thing worked out. And I've been with Nails for almost about 12 years now. And then even with within that period, I, uh, you know, I've, I've joined Angels on Airwaves in about 2012. I've been with them since. I had a very brief, and mainly as a session drummer on the album with Paramore's self-titled album, but I did some touring with them in between Nine Inch Nails cycles. And I've just kind of been all over the place, which was never my intent, really. I mean, being somebody who worshiped bands, I thought I'd like to be in a band. Yeah. But it ended up that I was just always doing one thing after another. And um, it's a great thing, I can't complain. This is when I speak about fate, that fate is speaking all the time. Fate speaks loudly, and I say, it's speaking all the time, it's speaking now. So you went through how fate was laid out was, was to a certain degree that it was yelling at you, and you just followed this path of leading, listen, Josh, freeze. Fantastic drumming. You had to learn a lot of material with Nine Inch Nails. What was it like? The massive amount of material. What was it like trying to learn this stuff and put this together? Now you're you're stepping up to another level that's testing you. Yeah, I um, I was told to learn eight songs for my initial audition, and I auditioned at a sound check while they were on tour. It was somewhere on the East Coast. I want to say New Hampshire, but it gets a little hazy at this point. But I learned those eight songs and I was very confident. Now, one thing that I can't really explain is that I do love a challenge. So if something feels like it's either testing my ability or stretching what I'm capable of in a, in a time crunch, I do gratefully rise to the occasion. And uh, it obviously worked out, so I'm happy. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about comfort zone for a second. I've got to admit, just seeing your career and what you've done, and 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 having seen you when you were just a kid at Modern Drummer Festival in the, in, in two thousand, and seeing you your career develop, you your your comfort zone. You don't let yourself get too much into any kind of a comfort zone. You like to be challenged. Listen, that's a quality that a lot of people have. You like to be challenged, and then you'll go to playing keyboard and guitar with the band. How was that making that shift with Nine Inch Nails? You know, you just said that um, I um, I don't let myself get too comfortable, which probably explains why I'm uncomfortable most of the time. <laughs> but um, so in terms of you're asking about playing different instruments within a song in Nine Inch Nails, I take it. Is, is that what you're referring to? Absolutely. So what was what's it like where you now you're in drum mode, you're in drum head. And then you got to switch to guitar. Now you're in guitar head. Then all of a sudden you go to keyboards. I mean, how do you make those changes? It's just a matter of, well, look, especially with, with Nine Inch Nails, where everything, and I mean this in the best way, where everything is so precise and on, and it just has to be delivered with, uh, what's the word, I'm, with, with intent, you know, and it's, it's very aggressive and all over the place a lot of the time. I'm just in that mode of needing to deliver. So I play the drums and when I hit that last beat, my mindset is I need to get to the piano quick enough and hit my chords. 
And the second that's done, I'm thinking I need to get back to the drums fast enough so that I'm on that downbeat. There's no sort of artistry. It's literally the starter pistol and I need to go handle it. And what's funny about it is Trent's a phenomenal musician and he, he and I work very much along the same wavelength of we put in our time, we want to achieve perfection and that is the goal. But in the song March of the Pigs in particular, video, I run back and forth to the piano uh, from the drums twice throughout the song. But there's this second time where it has a longer break where it's me at the piano and him singing and there's the metronome drops out for this part. So I'm listening to the way he sings to accompany him with the chords. But even though the click is gone, the track is still going. So he is intentionally, some of the time, pushing me past my level of comfort because he knows I have to run back to the drums. And there have been times, and I don't find it funny at the, at the moment, but there are times where I am just sweating from anxiety, not from the heat of the lights, because I'm like, this is coming up and he's pushing me and I need to run. And it's not just a run. I have to run and jump onto the riser, onto the throne and pick up the sticks and hit the downbeat. And there have been times where I just leave him there. I'm like, I can't hit these last chords. And just, I'm out. And I have to get back to the drums because that song's going to come back in. But um, I love it. And he knows that I like a challenge. So anything he can throw at me, he has and he will. So think of it less as a push and more as guide rails. Mm. <laughs> because trusting, they obviously trust your ability and your musicality. Listen, this is huge in any band to have that level of trust. When there's trust, there's high levels of respect. And that means they've got to lean on you. So guiding you to move around that way, that's a pretty powerful experience. Yeah, and I appreciate it. And, and coming from other bands who were threatened by my musical abilities off the drum set, it was, I mean, I always found it very stupid because obviously being in a band, any skill you can bring to the table should be viewed as an asset. But it wasn't until Trent and then later Tom with Angels and Airwaves, they look at my capabilities and quite frankly, exploit them, which I love because if I can, why shouldn't I? So as you said, I've been able to play bass, guitar, piano on stage with Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it's all, Trent's also the only reason why I own a cello. I'm certainly not a cellist, but at one point a few years ago, Trent said, do you by any chance play the cello? And I was like, my response was not yet. And he said, because I have a couple of songs that it's very simple playing, but if you want to do it, I will get you a cello and I will get you lessons for after rehearsals if you want. I'm like, let's do it. And I did it and it worked out great, but but it was, be, I, I would not play cello if he did not challenge me to play one on stage. And uh, I'm careful that he did. So then again, we speak of fate. That I mean, look, if I turn into Yo-Yo Ma, I would call it fate. I think it's just a sick challenge that I happen to, to call. <laughs> I'm sure Yo-Yo would appreciate having that cello and the fact that you're bringing it to the kind of music I'm sure that's a good thing by far. It just with Nine Inch Nails, there's, a, there's electronics that go on with this too. Yes. Now you're playing, you know, 
thing, acoustically and electronically. How do you make that adaption and that change? How do you have to research? I mean, sometimes the electronic stuff can be overwhelming totally. Well, that's what I find so thrilling and addictive about it. I mean, my I probably had just a, a couple hundred dollars of electronic toys before I joined Nine Inch Nails. And it was something that I had just begun experimenting with because as I've said numerous times throughout this conversation, I mean, where I came from musically was very much 60s, 70s amps and drums. And it wasn't until really I started listening to Radiohead um, later on where I was beginning to develop an appreciation for electronics and really effects in general. I mean, the effects that I was familiar with was a tape echo and then a fuzz box, really, just because that's what I listened to. But um, it was the perfect timing and the perfect breeding ground for really taking a dive into electronics and synthesis in particular. I mean, anybody can program a drum machine because it's it's very it's very sort of metric. It's right in front of you. You hit the lights, those lights trigger things, you hit buttons and it, and it works out. But really understanding the way synthesizers work and understanding that these are electronic devices that are designed to try to emulate acoustic sound. You don't have to approach it from a, a scientific point of view, but really that is what synthesizers are. So then you start learning what waveforms sound like and why waveforms sound different to other waveforms and you start realizing or understanding harmonic content and why a pulse wave sounds different to a sawtooth in a triangle and then all the way down to a, a sine wave you learn that that's and at least i learned this because as i said music is great for the antisocial so spend <laughs> a lot of time learning boring things but it's great and i probably have as many they're close to as many synthesizers and drum machines as i do guitars and basses i just i love them but um you really can't approach it from both the, um, the sort of experimental pioneer aspect of just playing with something that is completely unfamiliar to you, but you really can take a dive into it from, I don't want to say scientific, but a methodical point of view, because what I love about synthesizers is, you know, let's say we're looking at a guitarist setup. He's got his guitar, he's got his amp, maybe he's got some pedals and effects, but really a synthesizer is the entire the entire setup and all of these things are set up slightly differently and they sound slightly differently and they have different capabilities and, and different sort of assets or things that they, they thrive in. And I just really took to it, but really having spent just over a decade being into it, I'm learning something new every day and then something new comes out and I have to learn how to use that thing. And uh, it's really an addictive and expensive hobby, but I use it every day. So I love it. Listen, you were social distancing way before that was an even term. <laughs> I feel that I could have written the textbook on social distancing. The CDC should have spoken to me of keep away from other people and stay by yourself. <laughs> you know, what I enjoy is the fact that you have that, that constant learning mentality. That is so healthy for an artist. But what you're doing with the electronics, I think, is very interesting. You're one of the few that's combining science and art. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a of science. You got to be that scientist to understand 
the, the world of electronics, which is what it is, hmm. then you're pulling it into art, which is a real blend of two opposing forces that are now starting to be married. And you're doing that so well that I enjoy it when you're playing because you're moving back and forth from that electronic creativity. Then you'll hop acoustically and you'll start to pull from what you just played electronically and you'll bring that into. And that goes back to your jazz improvisational skills. Where now whatever electronically it's giving you, you're now acoustically being inspired by it. And every night can be different. And hell, that's where it all begins. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just uh, I always see what does this new thing bring to the table that I didn't have before? And whether that means a new synthesizer, whether it means a new snare drum or cymbal or um, a Hoffner bass that I'm currently eyeing right now. It's everything has its own place where it shines. And part of the fun to me of acquiring new sounds and instruments is really figuring out where those things thrive and what they can do that nothing else in my arsenal can. So there you have it. <laughs> Pretty simple from your perspective, yes. Let me ask this. I want to step a little bit more into your mind, into the creative side. Okay. Yep. How do you how do you write, you know, when, when you write music, does it start from thought does it start from guitar keyboard drums does it start from a lyric how does how does all that process work it usually comes from the guitar or the piano just because those instruments lend themselves to playing and mumbling something at the same time i have written once maybe twice from the drum set but not in the sense of writing a song, but starting an idea, thinking, I love this beat, or this beat is now inspiring what the bass line could be, and really just planting the seed of what will eventually become a song. But as a writer, it all stems from the guitar or the piano, and I think they both have their their benefits, but I do, to this day, think that the piano is the, the almighty of the instruments. I mean, it's got the entire range, Somebody so ingeniously put that it's all there in black and white, in which case it is. You see harmony, chords, you're able to look at your chords, but experiment with bass, which would be far more difficult to do on a guitar. And it just lends itself to composing. I mean, there's no question as to why all the great composers and really the greatest songwriters had some form of, of piano ability. And it really stems from there. Um, as I'm playing, I'm envisioning what the drums are going to do, what the bass is going to do. And I really feel that I have about 75% of the track laid out in my mind, stylistically, feel, playing-wise. And then I do love to leave a good window of experimentation because, as I said, I have a lot of toys, and each one of those toys brings something new to the table. So, for example, a lot of time when I write with a guitar, yes, it can be an acoustic guitar or it can be just me plugged into an amp but a lot does come from some combination of a guitar with an amp or some pedal of some kind that's just makes you play differently i mean bringing this to the drums i love to play bottom sized drums I and mean, we're talking about a 26 inch bass drum 14 16 18 toms but if i'm sitting at a smaller kit I'm naturally going to play slightly differently, and that will be bringing something out of me stylistically, just because your ear responds to what it is that you're hearing. And then that 
relates to how you're feeling as you're playing. And all of those enigmatic elements end up shaping what this idea is going to become. So it's really just a process that's in flux. And it's not until I start recording it where it ends up in its, in its final form. But then you have so many elements where, let's say you're putting down a vocal and this is the melody that you've been humming at the piano the whole time. Then you put a harmony on it that makes you think about something else. And then you start tweaking the main melody and it just goes around and around and around until somebody says, hey, we need to get this mixed and mastered where you go, okay, I need to stop and uh, finish this. But it's really not done until you send it off. In my <laughs> so well, I like how you have is acoustic piano or synthesizer. Which one inspires you more? Definitely the piano. Absolutely. And I mean, I have a lot of, I have more monophonic synths than I do polyphonic. And for those wondering what that means, uh, monophonic means you play one note at a time. And that as bizarre as that may sound, that is how the, the I would say the bulk of synths are, especially the more popular ones. We're looking at Mini Moog. I mean, they just came out with, Moog just came out with their first poly synth in I think almost 40 years or whatever it was. But um, that, mono synths do inspire me in terms of bass lines because that's really a place where they thrive. Not not just so, but in particular, I love playing around with monosynths, and that will inspire a bass line, which will then inspire a melody or a beat idea. And polysynths are fun because you do get more of a of a greater picture in terms of range and, and harmony. But yeah, when I talk about the piano, I mean literally sitting down at the piano in its uh, original true form. Well, that's you know acoustic piano. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, second instrument. I've got a little baby grand at my house, that, you know, and I just love being able to hear and feel. It's a percussion instrument, so it's in the percussion family. So, yeah. so as we are as we're playing it, there's a certain vibe that comes from it. But I like, I really enjoy how you you see these instruments as tools. That they are tools. If a drum set changes in its sizes, you adapt it differently, like you would. A hammer in your hand if you have a smaller project you'll get a smaller hammer so you, mm. you adapt to these which brings me to the sticks with vader you were the youngest one it's 14 years old when you sign with vader mm. which in itself is amazing and the, the the vader nude series tell me about the nude series what the stick is different about and how you like it in your hand well before we get to the nude series the reason why i went to the nude series is i don't know what is wrong with my sweat or my pH balance or what? But if I sweat on a lacquered stick, it just becomes the most slippery, difficult thing to hang on to. And for some people, it makes them, you know, makes the lacquer feel stickier. But I just got to a point where being a heavy hitter, I didn't want to spend extra strength holding on to the stick. Because as you know, power and feel comes from being loose yeah. and everyone's either played a show in the day or a hot venue and worrying about dropping a stick or it's slipping out of your hands. It's just not fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I initially started sanding the sticks just to get the lacquer off. And that felt great. When Vader told me about the nude series and how it was basically the raw wood. He, he may have even sent me prototypes or sent me the stick that I was using without the lacquer and then said, we're actually going to, released this series called Nude. Beautiful photo, by the way. And uh, 
I just, uh, I haven't looked back. Now, a warning to those who think it's a good idea, which it is, but you need to prepare because it is raw wood and you will get blisters. But once those blisters break and turn into calluses, it's the most liberating thing because the sticks aren't going anywhere. And it feels great. It's not for everybody, but for me, I haven't been able to look back because it just feels comfortable. It feels natural. And like I said, I'm never worrying about my sweat ruining the, ruining the song. Listen, this is what Alan Vader does so brilliantly out of the, out of the mind of Alan Vader is he offers enough variety of the product that however your body adapts to the holding of this tool in your hand, this piece of wood, you can find out what is best for you. And you found that exactly what works for you that lays in your hand perfectly well and allows you, and it's a one, a stick. Which is interesting. It's it's one A. And the reason what with uh, the reason why I went to one A's is I don't have a good reason for this, but I I naturally choke up on my sticks quite a bit, and the one A's are a bit longer than sticks usually. I believe it's a seventeen inch length, and the only thing I can attribute that to is having started so young. Whatever sticks were at the kit were probably a little heavy for me, and I choked up to make up for that that weight differential. But that's just the way sticks feel comfortably in my hand to this day. So that added length really does help. I mean, occasionally, depending on what it is that I'm playing, I'm not as choked up. But really, I mean, anytime, and I don't even notice it at this point, but occasionally I'll see a photo of me playing and I'm thinking, why am I choking up so much on the stick? But when they're in my hands, that's what feels right. So bottom line. Bottom line, if it feels right, you go with it. That goes back to your trusting your instinct. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to intent. Your intent is more powerful than the grip or the feel of where the stick should be held. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just kind of going with what feels right and what's natural. And it works. Voila. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and yeah, I, I love the sticks. I highly recommend the, the uh, just nude. They, uh, they feel great, uh, and I, I believe that the line has been expanding over time since they were first introduced. The 1A may not be for everybody, but uh, the, the length and just the overall balance of the stick is my reason for having gone that way. Now, if anybody does choke up and they feel like they don't have enough stick in their hand, then definitely try out the 1A. Fantastic. I got to ask you as we go on, you know, it's really amazing when I talk about being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. This is, listen, this is really huge. This really is big from the fact that, A, the youngest person of rock and roll in history. I mean, this is, you know, how do you feel How do you feel with this? I feel like it made up for quite a bit of the disappointment of 2020, personally. Now, you know, I'm just saying, it was one of those things that I really didn't see coming. Um, I knew that Trent and management were really pushing for those of us who got inducted to be inducted. But I knew that Nine Inch Nails was going to be inducted as of, I think, January of this year. And I didn't find out that I was personally inducted till probably just over a month ago. So it was a really tremendous bit of news that, I mean, even a month later, I feel great about. And I'm really happy about it. I'm very proud of it. Um, I'm especially proud because... And I think it's it's a great thing for for my parents as well, given 
that they've been so supportive of my path. I mean, this is one of those things that you grow up either watching on TV or reading about, you know, your legends or your heroes are in this Hall of Fame. And, and for what it's worth to be able to just have even the most inkling of something in common with with that caliber of people is a great thing. Now, you'll find this really funny is that I have two trophies in my possession. I've only been given two trophies in my life. My Rock and Roll Hall of Fame trophy and my Modern Drummer, Undiscovered Drummer trophy from the year 2000. So, you know, I had a two decade gap, but I think they're too good <laughs> in my collection. <laughs> well, that's I, I figured you'd appreciate that. I love that because even in that two year decade, you know, Modern Drummer is incredible in how it's laid a standard down for mm -hmm. what is happening in the world. It's still to this day, you know, the, the incredible direction of where it's going with David Frangioni is so fantastic. And they're discovering young people as you were discovered as a young child at that time to then be given the opportunity to be featured that way, which really is incredible that you have that. And now we have incredible amounts of people that are watching this live right now worldwide. A couple of quick questions. First, what was the UK band that you were in when you went to London? Well, it was a band called Lost Prophets. I um, I was with that band for a couple of years and it was very good professional stepping stone for me. And I won't get into any details, but for reasons that some may be in the know, it's something that I've kind of just politely and quietly scrapped from my record. But uh, it led to good things, so um, I feel fortunate to have been able to make that transition through the band, and it led to good things for me. But uh, an unfortunate demise for them, but nothing to do with me, you know? Not all journeys that fate delivers us mm -hmm. take us down a path that is always, you know, colorful and rainbow-like. Sometimes those levels of experience we need to experience to give us the tools to take mm -hmm. on bigger and, and better adventures. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so like I said, I, you know, I look back on it um, pretty fondly. Like I said, great experience for me. It absolutely 100% led to something much bigger and better that I'm still a part of to this day, and I'm grateful for it. Now tell me about tell me about new regime. New regime. So that is my solo endeavor that I've done for quite a while now. I write, play, and sing everything. And uh, when I tour, I am either playing guitar and singing or occasionally piano and singing, depending on what the uh, what the set time is, whether I can get a keyboard up there, whatever it may be. But but generally uh, generally guitar and, and singing, and it's a ton of fun. I mean. The, the drummer has this, whether he realizes it or not, has this amazing level of comfort based on the fact that his instrument is in front and around him where you can easily decide to put up a barrier and block yourself off from the audience if you want to. And I really took that for granted as, uh, as a drummer all those years. I mean, I put everything I had into performing and playing, but there's still a level of comfort being in one spot and being surrounded by your instrument. Whereas when you're a singer, when you're a guitar player, I mean, I had this, I had quite a transition from just focusing on singing the best I could and, and playing the best I could. But I really had to realize, wait a second, I'm singing to people. I need to look at them. Yeah. I need to 
emote and bring across what it is that I'm singing to these people. I am literally both the entertainment and the the middleman. So it took me a while to really have to kind of take off my blinders and appreciate what it was or what it is to be a frontman. So uh, good lesson to be learned, but uh, and different things to flex. And, and that's another thing. When I'm up there, time seems to fly even faster because you're doing so many things and, and so many different types of things that you are in the zone until you're off stage and before you know it, it's over. <laughs> well, that, that elastic personality stretch that you're going through can only help in the development of you as a musician, as a composer, and with all the instruments that you play. And when you get back to the drums, it opens you up to remove that barrier and open up more from the perspective of drumming. So it's always a good thing in that level of growth, which is fantastic. Agreed. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. Ilana, it's been fantastic to have this time with you, to be able to, you know, let, there's people from all around the world checking this out. So this will be up on Vader's Facebook page and their YouTube channel for everyone to go back and watch again. And to have this opportunity of you to be able to step into your soul and share that with everybody is just fantastic. So I thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. And it was, uh, I have to say, easily one of the one of the better conversations, interviews I've had, especially over... You know, FaceTime or whatever it is that we're actually doing here. Uh, I have great questions, great insight. So I really appreciate that and uh, excellent research on your end. And hopefully the next time we speak and see each other is not another 20 years into the future. So we'll have to do this again. Let's try and make this happen faster. We'll do this. I'm sure Vader will bring us together as they do many, many great musicians around the world. So we'll get together for sure and touch base. I have been doing this for a long time in my life, and I get inspired by the next generation when they come up. You are absolutely one of the leaders of this next generation. And with that leadership responsibility comes great, great responsibility. It really is great in what you're doing. You are a great example of how articulate you are, the science that you understand, and the artistic standard you are setting is really something which we need now for the 21st century. Thank you so much. You've done fantastic. Thank you so much. You <laughs> have a good one. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, Elon. Good to see you. you. Thanks. Unbelievable. Just fantastic to have him here. This is great. From Vader, we ask you all to join us on Tuesdays at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We're going to bring more artists in here. We're going to have some more fun. And as you just heard from Elon Rubin, the great, great insight that we want you to have is for you to be inspired to take this to the next level. Enjoy what we're giving you. Vader Percussion, I thank you so much for this incredible opportunity. I thank you so much for making incredible, great product. This is fantastic. To you all, stay safe, and I'll see you real soon. Bye-bye.